Welcome to Ask the Dean. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and I'm the co-founder of MAPT. I'm joined every week by Rachel Grubbs, the other co-founder of MAPT, who has 20 years' experience in the pre-med and test prep world, and by Dr. Scott Wright, former executive director of TMDSAS and former director of admissions at UT Southwestern Medical School. Ask the Dean is a weekly Q&A we do live exclusively for our MAPT members, and this podcast is a recording of that session so that everyone can benefit from that knowledge. Let the knowledge flow. Well, hello. Ask, this is Ask the Dean. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Hi, everyone. Uh, this, is, uh, this is episode 67 of Ask the Dean. It's, I'm uh, Dr. Scott Wright, and uh, this is my colleague, Vernia Granham, and we're here to a- answer your questions. Now, you're probably wondering, where's Dr. Gray? Where's Rachel Grubbs? And uh, we will tell you that momentarily, but uh, uh, they've been delayed uh, slightly, but uh, we'll be here later. But uh, we're going to go ahead and jump into it. Verenia, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Yes. Thank you so much. Um, Yeah, we'll go ahead and get started. We didn't want to keep our our listeners and our viewers waiting. Um, Dr. Gray and Rachel should be joining us shortly. Um, But yeah, in the meantime, we can go ahead and and start answering some questions here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's do that. Sure. So here's a good one. Here's a good one to start with. Um, This is coming in from Christian. Should we talk about COVID in our personal statement? Yeah, uh, what do you think, idea. That's a good question because, you know, it's such a hot topic and such a topic that's been, you know, such an important, meaningful part of our lives for the last couple of years. Now, the thing I want to make a suggestion about is that almost every secondary application that you deal with is going to have a question about COVID. Not all of them, but a lot of them are going to ask a question about how has COVID affected you? You know, what, what has it meant to you, et cetera. And so I would say uh, knowing that that's going to come down the pike, knowing that that's going to be part of your application, I would say unless COVID has been a super significant part of your journey into medicine, then maybe not address it in your personal statement, knowing that you're going to have to uh, address it later in a secondary application or on the primary if you're applying in Texas or I think ACOMAS has a, a COVID question. AMCAS does not. But uh, uh, I would say, you know, if it's a huge part of your journey into medicine, yes. If not, then I would save it for those secondary applications. What do you think, Brandon? I think that's very good advice. I was thinking the same thing. Since it is so recent, um, I don't think you can consider it, you know, such a huge part of your or if you're a journey on this path, right? Because hopefully you've really been on this path for a few years and you've, yeah. you've sort of um, been thinking about this for a long time. Yeah. However, having said that, it has impacted many, many people in different ways. So yeah. as Dr. Wright was just saying, if it's something that, that you can um, reflect on in your personal statement that sort of, you know, impacted you in a great way, um, then absolutely. It's fine to mention it, but but it's also something you might want to address or you might address in the secondary. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Dr. Gray. Hello, hello. Hello. We are so honored that you are here today. 
I was I was checking out before I joined. I'm like, these two got it. I don't even need to do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we need you here. <laughs> Sorry for my uh, absence, but no. I'm here, ready to rock and roll. Awesome. Right, excellent. We were just uh, talking about COVID and addressing that in your personal statement. So uh, yeah. if you have anything to add on that, but uh, our advice was to probably, unless it's a huge part of your journey into medicine maybe not and leave it to the secondaries and stuff so yeah exactly it, it, it's interesting as as we continue with this kind of covid storm that, that we have yeah. 18 plus months into it at this point it's like covid is going to be a big part of of pre-meds journeys who are applying to medical school in the next one, two, three years where yeah, yeah. It's, mm-hmm. they're going to be pre-med through COVID. And so COVID yeah. stuff is going to be a big part of it. Yeah. It's interesting. You, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. Yes. Cool. Oh. Cool, cool, cool. Rock and roll. Should All we keep right. going? Yeah, let's do it. All right. I'm getting the hang of this. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to read, Dr. Gray? I would love to. Thank you. I'm a <laughs> freshman. I like that. A freshman. That's, that's putting out into the world that I get A's. Right. I'm a freshman at university. I want to enter medical school. Can you suggest daily things that I have to do in order to get a higher score on the MCAT? This is such a common, like, the MCAT is the beast that everyone is scared of. Oh, Vrini, what, what do you think about this? Um... Well, first, you're a freshman, so you've got tons of time. A, a freshman. A freshman, yeah. yes. <laughs> but you have some time. Um, the important thing right now is, of course, to get your study skills and your, you know, organizational skills down pat so that you do have a system in place and that you're, you know, not just sitting there passively learning all this information, but actively learning. You're taking notes, you're reviewing your notes, you're... You know, I'm old fashioned. I still believe in handwriting things, uh, but whatever works for you. Um, the important thing is consistency, right? Under, you know, learning something in a lecture, going back, reviewing those notes um, and make it a habit, make it a, a weekly habit um, to, to kind of get yourself in that mindset and keep really good notes and save them because you're going to be referring to them throughout the next two or three years as you prep for your MCAT. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I, I agree this same thing. And I like to call it learning deeply, mm-hmm. uh, learning, not just to make an A in the course, learning, not just to make an A on, on mm-hmm. an exam, but learning very deeply. That's going to be a huge part of, uh, of preparation for the MCAT is, you know, so that you're not starting from ground zero, because if you cram for everything in your courses, then you're going to forget the most of that. And so when you get to studying, then it'd be, you know, not good. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I would say just, uh, keep that up. Yeah. That's such an important distinction of, I got an A in the class, but did you actually understand or did you just cram and do well on the test? Mm-hmm. Right. Right. That's exactly okay. right. All right. Let's move on. I'm getting the hang of this. Hello, Rachel Grubbs. Ms. Hello. Hello, I'm here. And you are here. Yay. Uh, next question here. I received an academic dishonesty my first year of undergrad. I am now in my third year. I was wondering how this would affect my chances of getting into medical school. So good question for you, Dr. Scott Wright, for, for applications that are flagged with 
institutional actions, whether it's academic dishonesty like this or um, suspension or probation for grades, a GPA, um, or even misdemeanors and, and stuff like that. Uh, what's, what's the procedure that you typically see at medical schools? Or is there one? Because every medical school is going to be different. Yeah, every, every school is different. And uh, every, every school is different. But I, I would say some schools, depending on how you talk about it, it's going to be a, a huge red flag. You know, it's really going to have, be a problem. Other schools, it's going to be, they're going to really want to delve more into it. depends a lot on what it is and how you talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing, right? Uh, we, we say all the time, time heals all wounds, usually. And so getting academic dishonesty as a, a first-year student is definitely much better than getting it as a fourth-year student when you're yep. applying to medical school. So yep. hopefully yep. you have Absolutely. a nice track record of, of showing that you can get good grades and you either are not being dishonest anymore or you're just not getting caught. <laughs> hopefully it's the <laughs> the the... Former, not the latter. Right, um, right, right. So, exactly. yeah. In, in other words, Paulina, you still have a chance. Keep pushing forward. You'll yeah. Be, you'll be great. Yeah, yeah. That's a, I agree with that completely. Shall I continue? Uh, Sorry. Yeah, yeah, sure. It's rock and roll. I lost my place. Vernie is driving. Sorry. I am driving. <laughs> I just got my license, though. <laughs> I love it. Big Bad Bear says, I'm planning to apply next cycle. I have a great clinical job and lots of volunteering and shadowing, but no specific research or leadership experiences. Will this hinder my application at some schools? Right, and they qualified the question, at some mm -hmm. schools. And the answer is yes. It mm -hmm. will hinder mm -hmm. your application mm -hmm. at some schools. Yeah. Will it hinder the application, big picture, macro view of the application process? No. No. Yeah. Right. Some schools, sorry. <laughs> some schools emphasize, you know, the clinical, obviously. Um, some want the big picture, the whole applicant um but i think i think as dr gray was just saying um at the end of the day will it exclude you from some potentially but not from all yeah i agree i agree with that okay all right next question david asks what do y'all think about in cycle updates to medical schools i have an advisor who says to send them to schools every two months and another that says they are irrelevant unless interviewed <laughs> right again this is this is the question of like if you added at some schools yep it would make all the difference right some yep. schools say hey send us all your updates we love them we use them and other schools are like leave us alone yep. <laughs> don't talk to me it's like yep. it's like your your spouse or significant other if they wake up in the morning without coffee they're like don't talk to me yeah <laughs> yeah and, and yeah that's and and, and I would say, too, if you have something to update, uh, mm -hmm. that, you know, that is important. If you don't have anything to update and you're, you know, creating something that's just so you can send an update, that's not that's not a good that's not a good thing. Yeah. So if, if something big happens or there's definitely something that you want to address that's uh, that's going on with you, then absolutely, you know, send an update if they if they deal with it fine, if they don't you know, fine, but don't just 
don't just do it just to do it. Yeah. And I think that comes back to kind of our core message here at Mapped is being authentic, right? Yes. Telling your specific story and not trying to make stuff up or force a narrative that doesn't belong there, right? If, if you feel, and especially I like adding one little caveat to these updates and stuff like that is if you feel your application is missing in some aspect, then that you can be even more authentic to say, I know one of the things that, that potentially is lacking on my application is a lack of clinical, a lack of research, a lack of whatever. And here's some new thing that I'm doing to address that. And I just wanted to let you know. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I agree with that completely. All righty. C in OCHEM 1 from a four-letter grade scale is accepted. So is it accepted or do you have to retake it? I looked at the AAMC guidelines and I believe it is considered a passing grade. So four-letter grade scale. I've never seen that spelled out like that. So I'm assuming A, B, C, D is four letters. So that doesn't make sense because there's still... I think it's a, I think a four-letter grade scale is A, B, C, F. A, B, C, F. I don't think okay. there's a D. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, that may be one you have to dig in a little bit deeper. If, if you go to the AAMC, if you Google AAMC grade conversion, there's a whole PDF document that has like 20 or 30 different types of grade scales. And, and you have to figure out which one is yours and then figure out what the conversion is to kind of the numbers that the AAMC would typically use. Um, because the far majority of schools out there consider C minus on a traditional grade scale failing. You need a C or above. Um, and so I think Albert here is seeing the C as passing, but that four letter grade scale, I think may skew things a little bit. Now I would hasten to add here, Albert, that while it may be accepted, uh, it's concerning. And uh, this is a concerning grade. Um, OCHEM is a very important course, uh, definitely a prereq, but uh, it's going to come up on the MCAT. If you're not doing well in OCHEM 1, uh, OCHEM 2, if, you know, if you're struggling in those, in those classes, then there are bigger questions to be asked. You know, why, why am I struggling in this class? What is this, you know, what, what is going on here? I would suggest that retaking it, even if it's acceptable, may be the optimal thing to do, both in terms of your application as well as in preparation for uh, the MCAT, which will come later in terms of uh, your, your, your journey. But uh, so, you know, Keep in mind, it's not just about is this acceptable or not. What you want to work toward is the optimal, uh, the optimal thing for your application. What's going to make you the best applicant possible? Can I actually pose a question to the expert here, a follow-up to that, um, because this is something that I used to... You mean the other The other expert. The other expert. <laughs> this is something that would come up with uh, students when I used to advise students. Um, the potential for, you know, you have a C in a course, uh, an intro level course, um, should they retake it or maybe take a more advanced course and try to do better in that course? What would, what's your take on that instead? 
Yeah, so this comes up all the time, and I think Scott and I are, are very aligned with the the theory that there are lots of reasons for a student to get a C, right? You know the material and you bomb the final because you were up all night, your significant other had some sort of medical emergency, whatever, right? There's lots of reasons to get a C. And the, the question and reflection that you have to do is, did I get a C because I just stumbled on the final? Or did I get a C because I don't really know the material and I was lucky to get a C? And, and it's really that big self-reflection, that difference there that tells the student, I can continue forward and just go get better grades in, in the higher level courses because I have that core foundational knowledge. I just got a bad grade. Or are you struggling with the core foundational knowledge of that class? In which case, in which case you should probably retake it, build up that foundation so that you can continue forward. Yeah, and I also think it depends a little bit on what the course is. For example, if it's a if it's a, a general chemistry course or an organic chemistry course, then if you're not a chemistry major, you may not be doing much else beyond that in terms of, mm -hmm. you know, biochem, yes, uh, but, you know, un unlike a biology course where you could easily, if you did you know, made a C in bio too, then you could easily, you know, take a higher level like micro or something else, a higher level biological science class and do exactly what Dr. Gray has described. So I do think it depends a little bit on what, what course it is, what the next course you might take would be, uh, et cetera. Thank you. All right. Great. All right. What literature do you guys recommend for pre-health students, not textbook-wise? Interesting question, right? The, mm -hmm. the books that we recommend or mm -hmm. potential journals or magazines, stuff like that. Yeah. Rachel, yep. do you have any key go-tos for that? Uh, it's funny. So this is an ugly link that will not work visually. But if you're live, <laughs> you can go look in the YouTube chat, and I pasted something there. So... Um, we have a recommended reading list on the mapped Amazon store. And just as a matter of interest, I think you're going to, you know, enjoy reading books that are uh, by doctors. We really like, a, um, Brian, help me pronounce his name, Atul Gawande. Atul Gawande. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so he's got several books that I think you guys would really enjoy. Um, and then if you're looking to read specifically to like, you know, tackle your MCAT skills, for example, I always recommend any read that is um, like a long read for an article. And in fact, you could go to longreads.com. <laughs> um, but so think like sprawling New Yorker or Atlantic article yes. as opposed mm -hmm. to a newspaper article, right? So yeah. Yeah. one of those things that's like, even though it's meant to be a sit down and read it in one sitting, it's a 40 minute sitting, not a two minute sitting. And that's of course way more rigorous than any, than any MCAT passage. Right. But if you can train your brain to do that kind of stuff, um, I always think that's a really great way to one, stay informed on current events from magazines like that, or like, you know, wherever it fits for you in your political spectrum. Um, and, and just to kind of get used to dense reading that can be a little hard to follow if you're not super focused. Yeah. Good points. I'm uh, I'm working on a, a 
nice a nice link that we can send people to like map.com slash reading you know i was just yeah. thinking like why don't we have that forward so good thank you for taking that you're gonna write uh, all right all right our friend devin asks i initially plan to apply to all three services so for for those who don't know amcas acomas and tmdsas are the three application services for medical school but had some financial situations arise they have now been worked out is it too late to apply do i've already submitted secondaries for md and texas hmm. i would say no for do <laughs> hey ryan uh, <laughs> you're a I poet mean, and didn't I, know it i would say no it's not too late uh, it's not too late for DO. Um, I think DO schools, and we've talked about this numerous times on this broadcast, that the, the, the timeline for DO schools has shifted a little bit later, and, uh, and they reserve uh, some spots for later in the cycle into the spring and everything. So I, I would say go for it on, on the DO side of things. Yeah. Go for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. That's, that's always the one uh exception to the cycle timing is do typically runs later and, and yeah. keeps spots open yeah yeah and they're friendlier uh historically to um to january mcat scores penelope mm-hmm. mm-hmm. yep. asks is it okay if i complete the majority of my prereqs at a community college because i want to transfer to a four-year institution with my associate's degree. So becoming more and more common, right? People mm-hmm. go into the community college route because it's cheaper, cheaper. and more convenient. Yeah. A lot of times students can stay at home without moving uh, off to campus somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, Scott, what do you think this is still an issue kind of big picture wise? Again, with the caveat that, of course, there's going to be some <laughs> ad comms out there that just don't like it. Yeah, I think there's several... Um, points here that I'd like to make. One is um, that regardless of what you do, you have to do well. So, for example, in, in this example, uh, what Penelope says is she wanted to, wants to do two years, the majority of her, her, of her prereqs at community college and then transfer to, to the four-year institution, which is, is totally fine. It's very acceptable to do that. You cannot, once transferred to the four-year institution, you cannot let those grades drop. So if you're doing 3.7, 3.8 work at the community college, you got to keep that pretty close to that. If you drop down to a 3.4, 3, uh, 3.2 at university, then that's what's going to lead an admissions committee to say, okay, so this 3.6, 3.7, 3.8 is not real. Uh, it's, it's because it was too easy. Now, having said that, um, a lot of admissions committees are really recognizing that this is a, this is a socioeconomic issue, uh, and, uh, that a lot of students who are disadvantaged socioeconomically, uh, either have to or choose to go to community college first. And so if they want to reach students who are you know, in that sort of, you know, socioeconomic sort of group, then they're going to have to be, you know, they're going to have to really accept these kinds of students doing this. Uh, so, but I think the key here, as I said, the key here is you got to do well regardless of where you go. And so if Penelope, my encouragement to you is this is totally acceptable, uh, but you got to keep those grades up. You got to do well at community college. 
You got to do well after you transfer into the four-year institution where you're going to want to do upper-level uh, science courses and, uh, and and do well in those. So assuming all that happens, I think, you're, I think you'd be fine. Absolutely. Jacob asks, does it look bad if I take if a oh if a third year takes three to four second year courses or if a fourth year takes three to four third year courses? Yeah. My, the minutia. Yeah. <laughs> There's yeah. always the minutia questions out there. Yeah. Um, Scott, as, as a former director of admissions, did you have a directive that says, make sure that fourth years are not taking third year yeah. classes? No. <laughs> no. And, and, you know, they're not even going to know what a third, you know, they're generally going to know, okay, you know, sophomores typically take OCHEM, uh, but, you know, your journey is your journey and, and, and you have to do it in a way that makes sense to you. And as long as it meets the degree program requirements at your institution, uh, which is the bigger issue here, I think in terms of course sequencing, uh, it, Virenio could really address that better than I could. But it, as long as you're doing stuff in a logical way uh, that reaches where you want to go in terms of preparation for the MCAT and taking the MCAT on, on a schedule and stuff, then, uh, then I, I don't think it, admissions committees aren't going to look at that and go, whoa, what's up with this? So. No, and you have post-bac students who are taking things, you exactly. know, post-graduation. So there's yeah. no, um, um, there's no, there's no emphasis on that. Yeah. 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 I agree. Mm-hmm. Big, big picture people, mm-hmm. big picture. <laughs> yeah. Take the courses, do well in them. Yeah. Bottom line. Rachel asks, <laughs> is this Rachel, Rachel? Um, it looks like it. Do med schools look down on pre-med creators <laughs> on social media? Assuming, yes, this is Rachel. This is uh, artsy med Rachel. Uh, assuming they even look at their accounts. Right. So this is huge. Um, social media is obviously a huge part of our life now, right? It's, it's just how we live our lives. And more and more pre-meds are going and creating personalities and brands and and, and everything online. And, and Rachel is one of those students um, who has a phenomenal, a phenomenal Instagram account. If you want to go follow her at the, the artsy med. Um, and she, there's always concern uh, about what's going to happen. And I did a podcast episode about this recently because there was a content creator, uh, physician assistant. She had recently graduated, I think a year or two ago. And she posted some content that just was not okay. And she ended up getting fired uh, from her position. And so from a pre-med standpoint, there's always this question of, are medical school admissions committees, do do they have someone out there scouring the interwebs to go find like, uh uh-oh, does this person have an Instagram account? Is Is it a public account? Is it is it a private account? Is it under a pseudonym? Are they using their real name? And what kind of stuff are they uh, posting? And uh, on, on top of that, we, we dealt with um, several months ago or a year ago now at this point, the, the med bikini scandal where there was an article that was published that basically said, uh, kind of paraphrasing, there was a lot more to it, but like women in bikinis, uh, physicians, women in bikinis, it's unprofessional and you shouldn't do it. And, and so there was obviously a lot of backlash to that. So 
all that to say, uh, Verena, what do you, what do you think about that? Like, should students be concerned about what they're posting on the internet on social media? I think so. I think I think it's something that you know anyone any admissions committee member can definitely look up, especially if you have a public profile. Um, so I would say, just be smart about what you're posting. I think mm-hmm. I think be you know it's not the platform if you have a public sort of persona uh on on social media it's not the platform to use for your private things right so maybe have separate accounts one that's very clearly your public one one that's very clearly your private one um and just use your judgment a a, a finsta we call that (laughs) yes a finsta absolutely (laughs) that's the one you share with your friends and whoever else yeah um but yeah absolutely use your judgment yeah the 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 old adage if if you wouldn't be proud of your grandmother seeing it mm. you probably shouldn't post it mm-hmm. right and and that's whether you're applying to medical school or not what, what goes on the internet lives forever absolutely um, and so yeah. it's it we see it day in and day out now with uh, unfortunate behavior from mostly adults acting bad mm. about one needing to wear a mask and mm. Uh, getting fired from their jobs left and right. And it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of fun to see, but you need to be responsible for what you put out there in the world. Yep. yep. So I don't know if I was projecting, but I feel like I read this a little differently. The way I read Rachel's question was, do med schools look down on pre-med creators? As in, am I going to be looked down upon for this being my hobby, right? That that I'm spending a lot of time creating, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um which, of course, the answer is like med school outcomes are made up of human beings and the answers vary, but um, I sure hope not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, there's going to be the what I um, not lovingly call the, the crusty old white guys who are like, yeah, you're on social media too much. You need to go out and play. <laughs> um, but sure. I, I, again, uh, I, I think. Um, as we continue down this path, it's it's the norm for people to have social media accounts and to build brands. And, and I personally think that it's good that you're getting this practice now because as a physician, you want to build your brand. That is how you are going to build your patient base and how yeah. you're going to sustain a, a, a living in the future as a physician. Uh, being a physician is, is not just you open your doors and patients come and flock to you. It's they need a reason to come see you. Why why you over the, the person across the street? And it's maybe 100%. because you have a podcast or they found you on Instagram or TikTok or wherever and you're putting out valuable information. I, I think every physician, I think everyone in the world uh, who has a business or, or is trying to do something in life needs to have a social media presence. Yeah. Especially now. Mm-hmm. Hence why we're here, saying hello to you. <laughs> you do you. Maybe we're not the right ones to ask because we really like right. it. Right. <laughs> we think it's great. <laughs> My current science GPA is a 3.4. Graduated last year, planning to take courses to enhance my GPA. Do you think taking more undergraduate courses would be beneficial or post graduate courses? The lovely question where we don't know any trends, right? What mm-hmm. are the trends? Mm-hmm. Scott, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, generally I go toward uh, the undergraduate courses. I think uh, 
taking upper level undergraduate, upper level science courses, undergraduate uh, is the way to go. It's the safest, most conservative route. Uh, graduate courses can sometimes be graded differently a little bit. It's a little bit more difficult for uh, admissions committees to interpret what they mean or what, what you did in those courses. But undergraduate courses, very clearly, they know exactly how to deal with those. So I would always veer toward uh, suggesting undergraduate courses uh, in, in that scenario. Yeah. Um, and I, I just wanted to kind of share this. When we say trends, right, this is actually a decent kind of um, example here with this question. This is Map. This is the, the software platform that we launched last year. Um, and, and this shows trends, right? This science GPA is only 325 but they have a nice upward trend where these last four semesters, uh, looking at everything, is really high, right? You have 385, 374, 393, 370 with um, a decent amount of credits. Maybe could could use a little more credits there to, to show a, a, a better upward trend. But all, all that to say that this final number, whether you're looking at the science GPA number of 325, or the cumulative GPA of 3.3, that single number doesn't tell anyone anything because it's it's the story behind that number, the trend line behind that number that tells us a lot of things. And, and medical schools don't just see this final number. They see all of the data points in between uh, and they can see these trends and graph those trends and everything else uh, along the way. So, um, this is mapped. Uh, a lot of students love the graphs, but there's so much more uh, to, to what mapped is. But I'll, I'll leave it at that. All right. How are interviews weighed? Is it possible to have a phenomenal interview and still get rejected for deficits elsewhere in an application? Or is it your... Uh, quote, seat to lose once you get an interview. Hmm. <laughs> it depends. <laughs> yeah, uh, it really does depend in this case. Um, you know, I, I think interviews are very important in most schools. Uh, yeah. They It doesn't discount everything else in the application, but I do think that once once you get to the interview stage, it is a different, it is a different sort of, um, there's a there's a different calculus that goes on there after you uh, after you get an interview. Now, is it possible? You know, I, I do know schools, perhaps a lot of schools, that if you bomb an interview, the interview becomes a hundred percent. And you're, you know, mm -hmm. that, it doesn't matter how great your mm -hmm. your application was. You know, you're gone. Uh, now, having said that, it is possible uh, to uh, to do great on an interview. And still not be get a seat in the class because of the mix of everything else. Because, you know, I think most students do pretty good on their interviews. I, I don't think that. You think so? Yeah, I, I think. Well, I, I think it's like this. I would say it's a bell curve. Yep. Uh, I would say there's, there's you know, a, a smaller number that do stupendous. Yep. And there's a smaller number that do awful. 
And most people are right in the middle where they're, it's fine. It's great. You know, not a problem. You know, there's no, you know, no red flags, no any, you know, anything else that's going to cause them significant harm or, or significant help in the interview. And it's all going to yeah. be just okay. Uh, so, you know, knowing that, then I think that you have to consider that every, a lot of the other things in the application is what's really, uh, adding to the whole, um, the whole thing that's going to make, make a difference in terms of whether you're going to get an offer or not. Yeah. And, and if they work with you or Verinia, uh, on their interview prep, then they do, they're, they're on the top of that bell curve, right? Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Obviously. obviously. Oh. <laughs> Definitely. Um, yeah. So I, I've heard, um, all different accounts of, of what happens post interview. Uh, and Scott, maybe you can talk about what, what used to happen at UT Southwestern. But I've, I've heard that you go for an interview and then the admission committee gets together and they look at everything in total again. They, they look at grades, they look at essays, they look at LORs, they, they look at it all together with the interview and it's, they, you, you come to one final yes or no kind of uh, um, decision. And other schools will completely ignore everything pre-interview. They weigh, they weigh letters of rec and GPA and MCAT score and, and essays and all of that pre-interview and say, we like this person enough to interview them. And then post-interview, all of that stuff is ignored. So there's potentially a little bit less bias among the admissions committee of, of one person who's like, oh, this is, the GPA is what matters the most in my mind. All of that's gone and it's only interview performance that determines final acceptance decision. How did, how did you guys do it at, at Southwestern? We were the former. We, we would look at everything because in, in our system, and I think in a lot of other systems, the entire admissions committee is not looking at everything to, on whether or not you're going to get an interview. It's certain yep. readers. It's certain admissions officers that are doing that part of it that determine who's going to get an interview. It's not until after the interview stage that the entire admissions committee really looks at the whole the whole picture. So that's what that's what we would do. We would look at everything. Uh, one of the committee members would be the primary on that application, present that application to the rest of the committee, and uh, make a decision about. Then the committee would decide what do we want to do with this student. Uh, the and and you know. It would move forward or it would be put on hold or rejected. <clears throat> so it would just depend. But everything was in the mix during the whole process at yeah. Southwestern. All right. Cool. Marianne, does working in a group home count as clinical experience? So, so I'll, I'll answer this with working in a hospital doesn't necessarily count as clinical experience, right? What are you doing in that group home, Marianne? Mm -hmm. Yep. Clinical does not have to be in a clinic, but being in a clinic doesn't make it clinical. Right. <laughs> Good. <laughs> all squares are rectangles. Not all rectangles are squares. <laughs> there you go. All right. I will say, because I had a friend who worked uh, in a group home, I'm sorry, that um, it depends, obviously, what we were saying. It depends on what you're doing. But if you're administering medication, um, which is a, sometimes a big part of the job, depending on your role there, um, that would be considered clinical. So I don't know if that's the case. But again, it all depends on what you're doing. 
Right. What are you doing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Garage Bob. <laughs> Didn't do so hot in my first graduate program. A couple of WFs, which are counted as, as Fs. Mm-hmm. But have have done extremely well in my last sixty-ish hours of grad school. Can admissions see semester breakdowns for grad work? Comus and Amcas. Yep, I see it data point by data point by data I point. See everything. Yep, <laughs> it's like it's like the sixth sense. I I see bad grades. Yeah. <laughs> 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 That made me lose my place. (laughs) You're welcome. I'm here all day. (laughs) Should I learn Espanol to get in? Yes. (laughs) Si. (laughs) Si, no. (laughs) Por que no? (laughs) Por que no? Si o no, por que no los dos? Ah, there you go. I actually think Swedish is a better... Obviously, the Nordic the Nordic world is taking over. So, <laughs> yes, definitely. So here here's what makes me a little anxious about this question: mm. Should I learn Spanish to get in? Um, becoming truly fluent in a language where you could actually give healthcare is not something you're probably going to do quickly. Mm. I mean, I don't know, Jawad, when you're planning to apply. Right? Maybe it's ten years from now. Maybe you're five. Um, <laughs> but uh, in which case, I hope your mom told you it was okay to come watch this. Uh, <laughs> I, I think learning another language is great. Maybe you already know more than one language. Um, Spanish is a great language to know living in lots and lots of parts of the United States. Yep. But what I would advise everyone, not just the student, to be careful of is understanding the difference between um, between fluency and proficiency. A lot of us come out of high school and college thinking, like, I understand the basic grammar and I have a lot of vocabulary. And um, that's very different than being able to have a conversation about healthcare. Um, You know, I mean, I think back to, like, I used to do translation um, for my city's public health department and often for, for, you know, moms with newborn infants. And, you know, I didn't know enough medical terms to correctly translate everything the social worker was asking. And that was only sort of semi-healthcare, um, you know, but like, mm-hmm. for example, I didn't know the word for bowel movement in Spanish at age 17. Um, so I would be like, oh, did the baby poopy today? <laughs> you know? And that was okay because I was a kid translating for free at a home visit. But, you know, if you're actually trying to be... Uh, you know, a medical assistant or a physician, you're going to need to be fluent enough to not make mistakes, right? Like any use of Spanish can be comforting to someone who doesn't speak much English. But if you're actually trying to help with healthcare, you got to really know yourself. So, so I, I like the idea of should I learn more? That's always a great question to ask. Should mm-hmm. I learn more? Yes. If you want to learn more, do so. But I wouldn't study Spanish for a year and a half and then put down, I can help you know, practice healthcare in Spanish because you probably can't, you know? So just be realistic with yourself about what, what truly mastering the language is going to take. So I, let me, let me say something about this question. (laughs) Uh Oh, (laughs) I don't like it. I don't like, I don't like the way the question was asked because what the question doesn't say is, should I learn Spanish to help, patients in my future mm-hmm. career as a physician. Yep. Mm-hmm. This question says, 
and I'll, I'll paraphrase it in, in, in another way. Should I learn, would it help me to, mm-hmm. to get in to learn Spanish? I don't give a rat's ass about helping people in the future. I want to learn. I want to get in. So I'm going to do whatever I can to get in. Yep. And I, and, and that may not be Jawad, what, what your point is. And, and if it is, I apologize, but th- you know, this, this, the way that the question is phrased smacks of checking boxes and I'm going to do whatever I can to get in. And if I can check the Spanish box, I'll do it. I'll check the Spanish box. I'll check this box, check that box. And just so I can get in. And that's not a reason to learn Spanish. Yeah. Yep. Wow, did I pour cold water on everything? No, you you said what needed to be said. <laughs> um, JDology, current plans are to graduate December 2021 and hopefully matriculate fall of 2024. I'm stuck on whether I should spend more time in my amazing research lab or apply so that current or so that coursework doesn't expire. Advice. So this goes to the myth about coursework expiring, mm-hmm. which is just that. It's a myth. Stay in your amazing research lab. You I obviously agree. enjoy it. Authenticity. Yes. Yep. 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 Agree. Mm-hmm. Totally Easy. agree. Make sure you're getting some clinical in there too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Justin asked, do engineering classes count as, quote, science classes towards your BCPM GPA and for science letter of recommendations, mostly bioengineering classes? It depends. (laughs) (laughs) No, you love that. This is the most frustrating (laughs) part of this process. It depends. (laughs) What school? What application service? (laughs) That's it. That's every answer. (laughs) And it also depends on what class it was in uh, in bioengineering. And, you know, not some of them would count. Some of them would not count. It just depends. Yep. So Google, AMCAS, uh, course classification guide. A Comus course classification guide. TMDSAS has an amazing course classification kind of uh, a page on their website as well. And, mm-hmm. and go check it out. Yep. And what about the second part of the question as far as counting as your science letter of recommendation? I think it's uh, fine. Yeah, I think that's less of an issue, mm-hmm. really. I think most schools would say, okay, yeah, whatever. But mm-hmm. um, yeah. Okay. Hello, can working in a call center count as clinical experience? I speak to roughly 60 plus patients a day, scheduling appointments, requesting prescription refills, etc., but never in physical contact. I'd say no. Yeah. So it's again, it's not the location itself because we've stretched, at least here, we've kind of stretched the definition of clinical to say, look, during the pandemic, there hasn't been many opportunities for volunteering. And a lot of people have worked for kind of text hotlines, uh, different sort of hotlines for for uh, different crises. And we said, yeah, you're, you're talking to the patient, right? You're talking with them through this situation. That's clinical experience, right? It just happens to be over the phone. And people are like, but it's over the phone. I'm like, so the the televisit that you just had with your physician is not medicine. It's not clinical because it's it's not in person. 
Um, and so people are like, oh yeah, right. The, the, the pandemic has accelerated a lot of our, um, our understanding and acceptance of virtual interactions, including virtual clinical experience. But this is admin work, right? You're scheduling appointments, looking at prescription refills. That's uh, would would be what we consider admin work, and not and not clinical experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, should I vary the type of clinical experience I have? By the time I apply, I'll have about a 750 hours as a medical assistant, but this is the only type of experience that I have. Very common type of question that we get. Mm-hmm. Right? Fear of, of being pigeonholed, whether it's like, uh, especially if they're a medical assistant for like a surgical subspecialty. Right? I'm a medical assistant in dermatology. Will I be pigeonholed as the kid who only wants to be a dermatologist? And mm-hmm. which isn't the case. It was just the job that I could get. Yeah. No. I mean, I, I don't think so. I, I think that, you know, they're going to be looking broadly at, do you have clinical experience? And, and if so, you know, that's great. Particularly working as an MA, you know, that's, that's a really great experience, you know, to get. You're dealing with patients every day, all day long, you know, in and out of the, in and out of the, the exam rooms and stuff. And so I, I would say, yeah, I wouldn't really worry about it. Yeah. Yeah. And each case is different, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Can we do Suzanne's question? It's a, a very common one that students students ask. We haven't done yeah. one like that. When a student gets a chance to talk one on one with admissions officers, I'm assuming, or with the admissions office, while being an applicant to that school before an interview, how would you recommend that they advocate for themselves without crossing a line? Dr. Wright, what do you think about this? I, I often talk about and, and have, have talked to different admissions committee members about different rules of engagement, pre-application cycle and post-application cycle, with the fear of seeming, uh, being perceived as biased towards certain people if there's 100 applicants to a medical school. We, we know it's 100 times that. Um, if there's 100 applicants to, to a medical school and two of them happen to reach out to different admissions committee members and that admissions committee member talks to them and gives them advice. There's, it's perceived as kind of playing favoritism to those two versus the other hundred. And so I've heard that pre-application cycle kind of sky's the limit at, based on bandwidth of, of that admissions office versus post-application. Once that student is an applicant to that school, they basically are like, we can't give you any advice. Mm-hmm. Don't mm-hmm. talk to us outside of the normal kind of channels we've set up. Yeah. But it sounds like maybe Suzanne here has the opportunity to talk to someone. Um, what are your thoughts on, on potential line crossing that she's concerned about? Well, I would say just, um, you know, you have to use your intuition a little bit. And, and I, I would say veer, I would say, um, probably be best to be, you know, somewhat conservative in that. And, and, you know, just, uh, it's fine to say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about this opportunity. I, you know, do you have any advice that you can give me in terms of things that I can do to help prepare for the interview or whatever? Uh, you know, things like that that are sort of higher level things. If you start drilling down to, uh, well, you know, in my application, I put that I was, you know, I was the valedictorian of my college class and GPA was 
you know, whatever, um, you know, that, that's when I think you, you start trying to sell yourself. And I, and, and I think that's a little, little uh, over the edge uh, in my view, at least. Uh, I often draw analogies just to help students, because these are common questions, to help students find that you already probably have the instinct to answer questions like this, and the instinct you have comes from dating. So we've probably all been pursued by someone who for some reason felt obligated to say, oh, I'd be a great boyfriend, I'd be a great girlfriend, like I'd treat you right. (laughs) Like, man, if that is not the biggest ick to me, like treat me right. If you start talking to me about how you're going to behave or trying to convince me of your attributes rather than just showing them to me, I'm immediately going to think something's amiss. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I, this admissions person's a human being. Like, just be yourself with them. Yeah. I, I think we should change the whole show and tell concept to show not to tell. <laughs> You know, when you're in elementary school and you have show and tell days, Mm -hmm. let's start from when they're very little with that concept of you're showing, you're not just telling. Same thing. Yeah. It's, it's the actions speak louder than words. Yeah. All right. Good luck though, Suzanne. It's cool that you've got that chance. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. So this hasn't come up in a while, but it's still pressing. During the pandemic, what pandemic? <laughs> clinical volunteering opportunities weren't available. Would adcoms lower their expectation on clinical volunteer hours for this cycle? Yep. Definitely. Yep. Yep. And we've we've heard from them with Inside Med Admissions, uh, yep. the series, Scott, that you were doing. Yep. Uh, that's on a hiatus right now. But our first one was all about how COVID-19 is impacting the 2021-2022 the application cycle. So all of you can go find that at InsideMedAdmissions.com and rewatch mm-hmm. that with three different deans and directors of admissions of, of several medical schools. So, yep. Should we wrap up? I, I think we should. Yay. So, uh, just a quick reminder. If you haven't tried the Mapped app, there is a free trial. Um, Any time of year, you can always log in and get um, a 14-day free trial. But because you're watching this, you can get a special 30-day trial. I'm looking for that banner, and it's uh, eluding me. It's somewhere. Here we go. There we go. Use code 30 days free, so three zero days free. And it's at mapped.com. You can yeah. track your experiences, get a roadmap. You can get feedback from us. You can do simulations of your applications to pre-work on essays. And you can track your GPA, which everyone tells us is the thing they love. But, man, there's so much more. Yep, definitely. Yeah. That is mapped, mapped.com. Go check it out. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, thanks everyone for showing up and yeah. hanging out with us. We're here almost every Wednesday now, yep. at 1 p.m. Eastern for Acidine on all yep. of our uh, public channels, most of yep. our public channels. Yep. Uh, I'm excited to get a, I'm waiting on a, a new iPhone. When the new iPhone comes out, I'll have this iPhone and I'll have a new iPhone so I can go live on TikTok too. So I'll go <laughs> live on both. <laughs> Are we going to have to dance? Because I don't dance. No, that's so okay. stereotypical. TikTok is not just dancing. <laughs> 
That's one tiny piece. As long as we're not. Now what? Now what is this thing called TikTok? <laughs> what, what is that you're talking about? <laughs> Don't worry about it, Grandpa. <laughs> is that the thing my clock in the corner says? Tick tock, tick tock. <laughs> All right, everyone, have a wonderful day. We'll see you soon. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye. This is Dr. Gray again, closing out. I hope you learned something from our session today. If you haven't yet checked out Mapped, I invite you to try it for free for two weeks by going to mapped.com slash podcast. Track and navigate your journey to medical school using the only tool like it for pre-meds. We'll see you next week here on Ask the Dean.